Hi, welcome to another episode of God is Real, God is Good. This is me, Camus, and today I have Kathy Law with me. Hi. And Kathy goes to our church here in Kamei. Super sweet lady. She's asked me to do a sermon at our church, so... <laughs> Looking forward to that. Yeah, it's upcoming. So, Kathy, why don't you tell us a little bit about where you're from? Well... Um, I was born in California, started out there, and then um, when I was six years old, my family was asked to come, well, my dad was asked to come to uh, Hawaii, Oahu, on the island of Oahu, to be the treasurer of the first Seventh-day Adventist hospital on the island. And it was at that time it was called Castle Memorial Hospital. Mm-hmm. So he was there from the very beginning, and I, I tried to call myself a missionary, but nobody let me get away with that because <laughs> you were in Hawaii. <laughs> yes, like a missionary, right? <laughs> so um, we were there for nine years, and uh, then I I went on to school and college and so forth. And um, right now we are in Kamei. Where you, you know, yeah. we're, we're neighbors in neighboring communities, Camus, and mm-hmm. um, we are just loving it here very much. How, how long have you lived here? Um, we moved here about three years ago. Mm-hmm. It's a funny story. We move a lot. So I was actually born here in Kamei, oh. and so we stayed here till I was like one, but then we like moved around for several years, and it wasn't till three years that we came back to Kuski, which is the neighboring community, so... And that's about when we moved to Kamei, so really? we were arriving in the in the area about the same time. <laughs> Interesting. God was bringing us back. <laughs> yeah, so it's a great place to be. That's cool. So you mentioned you grew up Adventist, but do you want to tell us a little bit more about your religious background growing up? Yes, um, I grew up in a, a very loving family, very solid. Mm-hmm. Um, I have only good memories. Um, my parents were um, disciplined, and they did discipline my brother and I. Mm-hmm. But it was always fair and just. And, you know, kids don't always understand yeah. at the time. But I did understand the love that it was administered with. Yeah. So I, I would say that that affected my view of God. Mm-hmm. And I have not had a hard time understanding a loving Heavenly Father because of that. And I, I'm very grateful mm-hmm. because the transition from my earthly father and mother to God has been um, a natural one. Yeah. You know, it's flowed very easily. I had the privilege of going to Seventh-day Adventist schools um, from, the, from kindergarten on up through 12th grade. I graduated from Far Eastern Academy and then um, went to college at Southwestern Adventist Academy. And that's where Mark and I got married. Oh, that's so cool. Down in Texas. That's awesome. And uh, then we both, as we were going through college, decided to be teachers. Mm. So um, we both have had some good experience. He was the career teacher Mm-hmm. Um, taught over 30 years. I have been more of a support in the classroom with him. Okay. I homeschooled our sons, um, not the whole way through, but 
um, a significant amount, kind of getting them started. And then later on, if they wanted to, actually, they schooled themselves when they got into high school at level. <laughs> it's nice that way. I know, right? <laughs> and uh, and so I'm. we're very, we have good memories of the um, schooling days. Mm-hmm. Probably my favorite memories are the home days with the boys. Oh, yeah. So like I said, I wasn't a career teacher, but, and I just have very precious memories of being home with the boys and getting them going and finally in school. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, wouldn't trade it. <laughs> That's good. I know. I loved being homeschooled. And, like, there's just so – you're so much closer as a family because you mm-hmm. grow up together and they're, like, your classmates. And there's just, like, such a connectivity and, like, such a cohesiveness that brings it to your family. My family's very close because of that. And I have already had that impression, Camus, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in observing your family, um, that there's uh, such a good interaction, positive interaction between, you know, your father, your mother, your brother – your sister and um that is it it tells for itself Mm -hmm. so i'm glad you also have a (laughs) loving close family yes definitely been a blessing Mm. well kathy do you mind if we pray just one more time and then get into your story of how god is real in your life okay dear father in heaven thank you for kathy for her coming to our podcast and for the story that she has to share thank you that you can brought her through it and taught her so many lessons and thank you that she's willing to share them with us now in Jesus name we pray amen all right Kathy so what is your story of how God is real in your life well Camus first I'll start with a little introduction you know since the Garden of Eden when Eve and Adam made the decision to disobey the God who had created them mm-hmm. and listen to the doubts of Satan we have been embroiled in a conflict here on earth you know, each of us are making decisions daily yeah. that reflect whether we believe Satan or God. Mm-hmm. Satan has come to destroy. God offers salvation. The choice is simple and yet very critical. So true. This story from my life is, the one, is one of the reasons that I've chosen to believe God. Mm-hmm. For me, it's just another evidence that God is faithful. Amen. On December 7, 1996, I stood in a critical care unit room looking at a body I didn't recognize. Mm -hmm. I had gone in where the nurse motioned, but had stopped abruptly at the door's threshold. There must be a mistake. This is not my son, Kit. I stared at the sheet-draped body. It was, it was too big for my 16-year-old son. He was mm. only 115 pounds. And this was someone else's son of at least 150 pounds. Mm. In confusion, I looked back at the nurse, and she nodded and motioned me to go on into the room that hummed and whirred with a ventilator, monitors, and drip IVs all connected to the patient. I stepped closer, searching, searching for something to recognize. Suddenly, I caught my breath. It was Kit. Yes, I recognized his black hair, still caked with dried blood. Mm. I reached to touch it, as it seemed the only safe place. 
not bandaged or bruised. The nurse must have noticed my shock as I struggled to comprehend his size. It's not unusual for a body to swell like this after the amount of blood transfusions he has had, she gently explained. I nodded numbly. What had brought me to this place? As teachers at a Seventh-day Adventist self-supporting school, we had accompanied the choir to the church. Well, it was to a church um, hours away from our campus. Yeah, so did you guys do that often? Did you travel around like that? Yes, we did. Um, We had, this happened to be uh, Clarkston Church this time. And um, we were traveling back Mm -hmm. home. But yes, we often uh, made, our principal was also our choir director and also our bus driver. (laughs) He wore many hats. And um, he would um, call churches within hours of our school and Mm -hmm. ask if we could come. And our our church services were filled with the students' testimonies, Mm. um, filled with their special music, and then the choir yeah. you know, would usually do a whole church program with testimonies in between, which made it very personal, very moving, and very real. The, the students were having very um, dynamic relationships with God. I mean, they were growing, and mm. it truly inspired me. That's awesome. It, it was. It was almost like a, a bit of heaven to hear their testimonies on prayer meeting night. Mm. They were just so excited about how God was answering their prayers. So here we had been uh, traveling home yeah. um, in our bus. Our two sons, Kit and Brandon, and myself were among the 30-some students traveling back to the school on this, on the school bus. My husband was transporting some students in a van traveling in front of the bus. Okay. Noting an oncoming semi-truck and trailer, signaling its intention to turn after we had passed in the bus, Mm -hmm. my husband watched in a side-view mirror as the driver of the truck, without stopping, turned in front of the school bus. Oh, wow. In horror, Mark gripped the wheel, catching a glimpse of fire upon impact of the two vehicles. But when the bus turned over on its side, miraculously, the fire was extinguished as it skidded into the bank. I was one of the last to be pulled out of one of the bus windows and gratefully climbed down the baggage rack ladder. (laughs) In shock, I passed students helping the injured and comforting each other. Mm. The sight of my son Brandon reassured me. Mm. He was safe. Mark had been assessing and accounting for students when Mm -hmm. he was called to the front of the overturned bus. There he found Kit, our oldest son, pinned and hanging upside down. All the seats had accordioned and had pinned his legs when the bus turned over. And so now he is left hanging and, you know, everyone else was evacuating the buses quickly as they could, you know, mm-hmm. because they were afraid it might explode because of the fire and all the gasoline that was emptying out onto the asphalt. Yeah, wrecks are not a pretty sight. Everything gets torn up and it's very chaotic. Yeah, and, and with all that gasoline, mm-hmm. you know, you know that there's a... Now, of course, the bus was diesel. Yeah. But nevertheless, there was an initial burst of flame 
And then it was snuffed out as Mark saw. And we just believe that that was God's intervention for the safety of all the kids so they could get out. Yeah. Can you imagine if there had been a fire? Yeah. It it, it was amazing um, as the rescue you know, the first responders arrived. And mm-hmm. that was their observation that it could have been such a, a disaster, more than it was. Yeah. But of course, it was a disaster. And um, at the front of the bu- bus, Mark found Kit, you know, pinned. And with help, he extricated him. Mm-hmm. In alarm, he noted that Kit was having difficulty breathing. Oh, wow. And by the time, you know, about this time, the first responders were there and they took over triaging the, the patients and including Kit. Yeah. Obviously, he probably would have been high priority. Um, yeah. And that's what even my son at one point went to his side and was talking to him, you know, and um, encouraging him because he noted that Kit was... Um, gasping for breath and having a hard time breathing and expressing some real serious um, thoughts about his condition. Mm. And so, uh, you know, quickly the emergency people were directed to Kit, and there were others, too, that were injured quite badly. As I watched the pulsating lights of the ambulances and police cars gathering, and I saw the reflection off the shattered glass everywhere, I bowed my head. Oh, God, please glorify your name in this. Mm. Tears flowed. But as I couldn't imagine how he could do that, I knew he would keep his promise. In 1 Corinthians 10.13, it says, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you're able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. That was a promise. And as I said, I had no idea how God was going to answer that prayer. It looked impossible. As I could just see the ugly scene of this accident before me. Yeah. Well, um, Kit was taken to Walla Walla General, well, I think at the time it was Walla Walla Adventist Hospital. Mm -hmm. And um, they took him immediately into surgery. He came out with no spleen and only one kidney because of the damage, internal damage that was done. Like that blunt trauma that slamming. Just FYI, I'm an EMT, so I can imagine like if you're having severe blood loss and the blunt mm-hmm. force trauma of those seats slamming into you. That's Well, and um, Mark had noticed um, when he was there, when the first responder cut his shirt apart yeah. to see why he was having trouble breathing. Mm-hmm. And Mark said, I saw um, the gear, I saw a perfect circle on his sternum, oh. which he knew. I told him later at, at the hospital, I said, Kit was sitting right next to the driver of the bus, right where the impact came of that truck. Oh, my. And so, uh, yeah, we we realized, he realized when I told him that, that that's what he had seen is the imprint of the gear shift on Kit's chest. 
Oh, goodness. And so, yes, you're right. There was a real impact uh, internally on him. And they didn't even know where until they got him to the hospital. Of course, they observed, they mm -hmm. triaged, and they had other students there, too. Yeah who um, were injured. So they were going through trying to account for who to deal with and how. It's messy when you have lots of people and you're trying to figure out who's the worst. And actually that night, um, three ambulances came to the scene and took students to three different hospitals there in the Walla Walla area. Wow. So you're right. It was it was a busy... Um, busy night. Yeah, Very it chaotic. was. Right. Kit had multiple injuries, we were told. His heart had stopped on the operating table there in Walla Walla when they took him into surgery. Oh, wow. But they succeeded in opening his chest and massaging the heart manually to restart it again, and it had restarted. Talking in low tones in the hall around midnight, the doctor advised that Kit be life-flighted to Harborview Medical Center. In, in Seattle. Oh, wow. So we were in Walla Walla. So that would be, you know, where he would. So like, just like knowledge of like emergency medicine. So like Spokane is like, so they go it off of like priority. So like, mm -hmm. like the grades. So like three is the bottom and I think one's the top. So Walla Walla could have been like maybe a three or a two. But Seattle's like the closest one there is for like lots and lots of miles so well they call it i don't think it's the official name but they call it um harborview trauma you know that's yeah. where traumas go burn victims mm -hmm. and just uh, real um serious cases now i didn't know that that yeah. night and i kind of questioned because um when the doctor said you know he needed to be life lighted i'm thinking wait a minute he's in the hospital i thought everything would be uh repaired mm -hmm. you know they they did open him up he was repaired you know fix the broken bones and 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 then you know get well yeah i i hadn't planned on him being transferred <laughs> so i'm standing in the hospital hallway there and i and when the doctor suggested that he be life flighted to harborview in seattle mm -hmm. i said well, why and then he explained he has received nearly 20 units of blood already. We need to get him where he, where the blood is. Yeah. And they have a blood bank there in Seattle. And um, a chill ran down my spine as he continued to explain that Mark and I needed to decide who would ride with him in the life flight Learjet. Mm. Yeah. I turned to Mark and I said, you know, we need to stay together. Why don't we both, well, the doctor interrupted with his professional directness, you don't understand. He looked at me and then at Mark. There's only room for one of you in the cockpit. One of you must fly with your son. He paused and then proceeded meaningfully. A decision may need to be made before the night is over. Wow. I flew with Kit. Mark drove back to the school because the van was there. It hadn't mm -hmm. been in the accident. Yeah. So he drove back to the campus with Brandon, our son, to wait for my phone call. So that was Saturday evening, and we were life-flighted to Seattle but in the early morning hours. Mm -hmm. um, I, I kind of lost track of time because they were preparing him so long for the flight. Yeah. So then 
he and Kit and I and the nurses that were attending him on the flight uh, were ambulanced out to the airport mm-hmm. there at Walla Walla. And, well, I don't know. I, I know they have something where they, it must be an airport there. <laughs> anyway, because I know we didn't go very far. Yeah. It, wasn't, it wasn't very far. So um, when we arrived at Harborview Emergency Room, I remember looking at the clock overhead, and it was 7 a.m. in the morning. So I do know that. Um, that kind of got me back on track. So that was Sunday morning. Upon arriving at Harborview Medical Center, Kit had been whisked away to the emergency room on a gurney. An attendant had kindly directed me to a private waiting room mm-hmm. where I welcomed the opportunity to kneel down to pray. He closed the door so you know I wouldn't be interrupted. Yeah. But before any words were formed in my mind, a sharp knock sounded at the door. When I opened the door, a tall man with graying temples wearing surgical scrubs faced me. Sit down, Mrs. Law. He motioned me to a couch. Pulling up a chair close to me, he looked directly into my eyes. When your son arrived here in the emergency room, his heart stopped again. Oh, wow. We had to open him up again and get his heart started. I gasped, but he continued. We had, um, we had to manually massage his heart to get it going again, he explained. Oh, goodness. We've been working at stopping his bleeding now. Overwhelmed, but trying hard to follow his report, I leaned forward. So he was still bleeding even when they transported him? Yes, internally. Oh, yeah. Because he had... Uh, specifically an injured liver that we found out later that um, they were not even able to close him up after the operation. So they had to kind of pack him Uh and cover him. So, you know, keep it sterile and everything. Yeah. And I didn't understand all this, but the doctor was just being real succinct. Um, You know, his heart had stopped again and now they were trying to get the bleeding to stop. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, as you're saying, you know, the first question that you ask, and this was what I asked him, well, where is he bleeding? Yeah. You know, and the surgeon said, everywhere. Everywhere, I whispered. Yes, wherever he has been injured, cut in surgery, wherever the needle pricked his skin to sew him back up again, Everywhere, he emphasized. It was fortunate that I was seated for his last words. Mm. I'm afraid if we don't get the bleeding stopped, we will lose him. Wow. And with that, he stood and left. The attendant, which is, you know, someone who works at the hospital, I forget the name of of what their title is, but they kind of meet uh, meet the family of patients is in it an like emergency. The chaplain? It was she wasn't a chaplain, but she was someone a care person. Okay. You know, that would make sure I didn't fall apart, I guess. You know, someone that was compassionate, that was there to help you and to answer your questions any way they could. Yeah. So she stepped in um, and she spoke to me after the doctor left, but my mind was whirling and mm-hmm. I just looked at her helplessly. And when she got done talking, I just said in despair, I don't know how to arrange a funeral because that's what I was expecting. Yeah. Compassionately, she guided me to the critical care unit waiting room 
uh, where she said that I would be called in as soon as they were able to get Kit ready. Yeah. I began to receive phone calls there in the waiting room nonstop. Friends praying, hurting with us, crying on the phone. Finally, a familiar voice, ragged with age, asked, Have you requested to have him anointed? It was our great Uncle Charles. Hope leaped at his suggestion. Mentally, I reviewed the instruction and the promise in James 1, 13-15. Is any among you afflicted? Is any sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer of faith shall save the sick. That very day, you know, I called Mark at the school, mm-hmm. and I asked him to come up. I, I was fast realizing that I, I shouldn't be here alone. Yeah. And so he came up with our former pastor friend and friend, Steve Huey. And uh, he, Mark also brought Brandon, our, our son, from Pasco, Washington, where the school was, and they drove all the way up to Seattle Harborview Medical Center that day. Oh, wow. What a drive. It, it was a very long drive. Um, and this was in December. Oh, you know. so. Yeah, so the pass was yeah. always threatening snow, if not snowed in. Yeah. So at our request, our, our, our pastor friend, Steve Huey, um, agreed that he would anoint Kit, have an anointing service. So standing at Kit's bedside with the hum of monitors around us, we each offered a prayer requesting God's intervention in Kit's life. And then Pastor Steve prayed, Lord, we know that you are able to raise Kit up immediately. Hmm. Or you can use the medical professionals here in this hospital, the technology, the medicines, to slowly bring him back to health. We ask that his sins be forgiven and your will be done for Kit. In your son's name, Jesus, amen. Tears stung my eyes as I wondered if I would ever see his eyes opened again. Mm. We waited, prayed, stood by his bedside as he remained unconscious for two weeks. Oh, wow. Every other day, he was taken into surgeries for different reasons, to set broken bones, to repair injured organs and nerves. Friends and family called, expressing their support. Strangers sent cards, and sometimes checks fell out. When we saw Kit's doctors in his room or the hall, we clung to any encouragement that they had to offer. Mm. Well, as the weeks went on, one day Mark and I knelt in prayer in the apartment where we were staying um, just, you know, a block from the hospital. Mm -hmm. As we knelt down to pray, he broke down. Kathy, how can we ask God to heal Kit when we don't even know if it's best? I have to tell you, he had been injured from head to foot. We didn't know if he would come back, how he would come back. Mm-hmm. None of that was was apparent yet. Yeah. So this is what Mark's question came out of. How can we ask God and beg him to keep Kit alive if it isn't best? 
Hmm. And so we held each other and cried together. And finally, I, I just said the words he already knew. We don't know what's best. Yeah. But we must keep asking because God told us to ask. I sniffed back my own tears. After we prayed, he left with slumped shoulders. Hours later, when the door burst open, I knew something had changed. <laughs> I talked to one of Kit's doctors in the elevator. Mark's voice was pumped with energy. <laughs> when I asked him how Kit is doing, he said, we don't win every battle, but we're looking to win the war. Hey. Isn't that great? It was just the word that Mark and I needed to hear right then. Amen. So day by day, God held us steady in spite of disappointments, long waits, and nighttime fears. Hmm. After six weeks in the Harborview Medical Center, Kit was scheduled to be transferred to Children's Hospital. He had gone from critical care to intensive care to a private room, you know, and just kept progressing in little steps little steps of progress, and had just started his physical therapy, um, actually being able to sit up for five minutes. The first time that the nurse had him do that, or the therapist, he was in agony to be off of the prone position, you know, of laying yeah. flat, and then had to sit up. For, he was begging within a minute to to go back to bed because it was so painful after weeks of being in bed like that. Yeah, his muscles would have deteriorated to the point that like he couldn't even really do that. But he regained consciousness and he was alert. Well, thank you for asking. I did skip over that point, didn't I? It was, um, okay, he went, the accident happened December 7, and it was about three weeks later mm -hmm. that he kept going into surgery and... And the nurse explained to me, you know, because I, I was about despairing that yeah. he would ever gain consciousness. But she explained, we have to kind of keep him unconscious because he has been going into surgery every other day. Yeah. So he's had to be unconscious. So every time he would come out of surgery and they would just start letting him get, un you know, get out of that unconscious situation he would have to take him back in yeah so they did finally this was the issue they finally got his liver to stop bleeding because they couldn't sew him up they could not sew up his abdomen yeah if they didn't um stop the bleeding mm -hmm. or else it would have just you know kept bleeding internally yeah so they they finally got that done within three weeks Mm -hmm. And we rejoiced. That was a huge victory and uh, gratefulness that we had been praying for every day. And so he, when he was sewed up, then slowly but surely they were backing off of the medication that he had kept him unconscious. Yeah. And we kept waiting, waiting for that moment. And I'll never forget when the nurse called us up. Because we, were we weren't there all day, mm -hmm. but they'd always call us if anything came up. And we would go in and out of the hospital room. But she called us up. She said, Kit is asking for you. Yay. So we went into the hospital. 
and um, saw his eyes open. Oh, how we rejoiced. And he, he had not spoken for days and mm -hmm. had not been given any water because he'd been getting IVs. Yeah, yeah. So his voice was so dry, he could hardly talk. Aww. And so we just talked to him. Mm -hmm. And uh, that, yes, thank you for asking. He gained consciousness when that... Um, in, it, when his liver stopped bleeding miraculously and it was and he was able to be sewed up his abdomen um, from his chest he has an incision from his about his sternum down to about his belly button oh yeah so that is the extent of that incision and how thankful we were when it was able to be um, mm -hmm. sewed up and that he walked away with no brain trauma because, like, of all the internal bleeding and stuff, like, I would have expected, like, some traumatic brain trauma from your brain bouncing around in your skull. Yes. Like, and um, there was, they did report to us at some point. Like I said, one nurse explained it like this. She said, you know, there were so many things wrong with him when he hit the emergency room. Mm -hmm. They could not all be addressed. Yeah. So as he was in the hospital, it's like almost every day they were discovering something else, mm -hmm. something else that needed to be. And I, I felt like within the first few days of him being at Harborview, that Mark and I were asked to sign releases constantly for him to go into surgery, to sew up his arm, um, to, uh, you know, set his leg. Didn't need permission for that. But there were yeah. certain surgeries that they had to get our permission so, um, yeah, there, it was a, a lot of things that needed to be addressed. And one of the things that we were told about later was that he had a traumatic brain injury. Oh, really? Yeah. So he, in, in, like you said, in all that accident and the slamming of the seats together and bouncing around, that yes, he, he did suffer um, what they observed was mm -hmm. a traumatic brain injury. And so they did, they kept checking on him. They would um, come in and check him sometimes to make sure that, you know, when he was conscious. Yeah. See, they couldn't really do this until he was conscious. So, you know, weeks later, a specialist came in mm -hmm. and would ask him questions. We were asking questions as soon as he could talk. Yeah. So, Kit, what do you remember? And, and just, um, I remember when Mark asked him, do you remember the 91st Psalm? Because as a boy, he had memorized that. Mm -hmm. And so he, he asked, do you still remember that? Can you repeat it? And I believe, well, I wasn't there, but Mark said he did start repeating that. And so all these little things began mm -hmm. to just thrill us and give us hope, more hope and more hope as Kit, week after week, began to recover and so now we were going from uh, the medical center you know the trauma unit mm -hmm. we were now being transferred and I remember one of the big issues for him being transferred is that he was still on an IV of oh I can't remember it now it was a blood thinner because while he was there at Harborview he had developed a blood clot 
Oh. And that can be like the end of your life, as yeah, you know, if it... in the wrong place. Mm -hmm. So they were very, very concerned about that. So they gave him blood thinner, uh, Coumadin. Oh, yeah. So since he was still on that, mm -hmm. they they were saying, well, we don't usually transfer patients that are on IVs. We want them to be independent of the IVs before we transfer them. Yeah. So I remember that was kind of cut short. Mm -hmm. And they said, no, we need to transfer them. So anyway, that was one yeah. of the issues. And a logistical error is he has a blood clot. And so he's on blood thinners. If that blood clot is to move and it breaks down and it gets in his heart, that would cause a heart attack. So yeah. other well, little concerns. You are right. You're right. And you know more about it than I did at the time. You know, mm -hmm. a, a lot of these things were... They, the medical professionals did all they could to explain things to us, but I didn't always know the questions to ask. You know? <laughs> it can be hard when you don't, you, know. you don't have a background of medical things. Mm -hmm. Um, I know that at one point Mark's sister, who was back East and was very interested in all of this and, and following it, mm -hmm. she asked Mark at the beginning, she, well, when he got to the hospital, Harborview, she said, so because Mark says he's plugged into all these things, you know, he's got IVs, he's got, she says, well, can you ask the nurse, you know, what, what it is so that I could understand it? Because she is a, she was a emergency room nurse. Oh, okay. And so she understood. So she kind of wanted some of the medical jargon to kind of understand his, his condition. Yeah. And the nurse, when Mark asked her, the nurse said, tell your sister that he's on, he's hooked up to every machine known to man. You know, that was her short answer. In other words, uh, you know, there's just, just he's, like, they're monitoring everything. He's getting IVs and, and being watched with yeah. a Hawkeye. So now he's ready to go to Children's Hospital. And uh, the, the nurse, as she was, you know, getting him ready to go and getting his discharge papers together and everything, mm -hmm. she made the comment to me, at Harborview Trauma Hospital, I'll just say that, mm -hmm. Harborview, um, we keep them alive and then referring over to Children's Hospital, they get them up and on their feet. Mm. And that's how she described it. And so now I we were looking forward to Kit rehabilitating, yeah. you know, getting more into his rehabilitation now that he had made it over the critical mark of just staying alive. Mm-hmm. So Kit had started physical therapy at Harborview, but it was a higher bar of activity and appointments at Children's Hospital. Physical therapy, occupational therapy, school, nutrition, all kinds of areas kept us hopping all day long. Mm -hmm. I was left breathless, pushing him down one long corridor and then going to another end of the hospital for other um, treatments that he was getting and, and education and, and therapies. As I saw other families weathering out their own drama with their children's illnesses and injuries, I became grateful for the healing that God was doing in Kit. Mm. As parents there shared their experiences with us, I became aware of the losses that were much greater than ours. Mm. But no matter how dark the outlook was for them, I saw courage and hope reflected in the face of those parents as they interacted with their children. That was just awe-inspiring.
Speaking of that, what happened to everybody else on the bus? That's a good question. Um, I would, I, I'm just going to speak roughly. I have, you know, I can remember what this was. I've written it down in detail, but just generally speaking, there were probably half a dozen students that sustained injuries that, that put them in the hospital for a mm -hmm. period of time. Broken bones, broken pelvis. Um, what am I? Oh, shattered leg bones. Oh, yeah. Um, so there were other very serious injuries, but Kit now going on his seventh week in the hospital mm -hmm. uh, was in the hospital longer than anybody else. Oh, they wow. were discharged finally with crutches and bandages and then had to, you know, rehabilitate at home yeah. too. But um, Kit was in the hospital the longest. And um, I, I wish I could go into some detail with some of those other injured students. I've talked to them mm -hmm. in later years. Yeah. And it is miraculous, miraculous what God did in their lives in healing them. Wow, that's amazing that God was able to work in those students' lives. So. Yes, and what stories they have to tell. I would, I would love to hear their detailed um, testimonies. I've heard a few details, but I'd love to hear it, you know, in full living <laughs> color. Same. <laughs> Yes. So, yes, there were others that had miracles in their lives, um, but this was just what I knew about my son mm -hmm. and our experience and the trial that we were all going through together. So it was inspiring to see these other children at Children's Hospital that were much younger than Kit. He was mm -hmm. 16, and most of them were younger. Oh, and wow. yeah, had fallen out of trees and had traumatic brain injuries and just some really sad things. But I saw their parents full of courage. Mm. Right. So as we approached the end of the second week at Children's Hospital, and this would be, you know, eight weeks of hospital oh, wow. stay, we were invited to the big meeting. On the council of all the medical professionals who had been working with Kit for these two weeks, mm -hmm. it would be determined whether he was ready for discharge or not. Mm -hmm. At the thought of staying on another day longer, Kit's face crumpled. Mom, if I don't get home, I will die here, he said with feeling. And I had no words to argue. I was close to believing he was right. It didn't matter how delicious the food was in the cafeteria where he could choose anything he wanted. He would turn his head away from those high-calorie milkshakes that they offered him, you know, in between meals all the time because mm -hmm. he, he says, I can't eat my dinner if I drink that too. Mm. So his lagging appetite didn't do anything to increase his weight on the scales, which would be one of the determining stats at the big meeting. Mm. The day arrived. We wheeled our son into the room and up to the huge polished committee room table. My heart fluttered with anxious anticipation as health medical professionals streamed into the room and seated themselves around the table. Mm -hmm. What would they decide? As each of them took his turn to share his evaluation of Kit's progress, the reports were cautiously positive until the nutritionist report. Oh. 
We gave Kit a weight goal of 115 pounds. To date, he stands at, she paused, looking over the figures on her report. I held my breath, remembering that the nurse that had weighed him just a few minutes before this meeting indulgingly allowed him to stand on the scales with his boots, cowboy hat, and big belt buckle, not to mention the walking cast on his left leg. <laughs> so lifting her eyes, she ended the suspense. 111 pounds. The room was silent. Kit looked at the head surgeon, who was in charge of the evaluation report. Well, he began slowly, that isn't the goal we set for you, Kit, is it? His eyes trained on her son. Do you think we can continue to do your physical therapy at home and eat lots of mom's home cooking to make up the difference of those pounds? Mm. There was a compassion and understanding in his tone. Yes, Kit answered firmly. Then based on the good reports of our team, he looked around the room, I will sign the discharge papers and you may pack up your things and leave tomorrow. The room erupted into applause and relieved smiles as the surgeon extended his hand to Mark, Kit, and then me. The journey to complete health was far from over. But just as the wise doctor had stated, Kit's persistent trust in God's power and his determined efforts would finally, in time, win the war. Mm. Whenever I look at the pictures in our praise album of Kit's journey through this accident and injury, it is a reminder that our God is faithful. Through every difficulty since then, I have been able to affirm the promise in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, God is faithful. Praise be to our gracious God for his wonderful love. Amen. So that was a, a growth in my life, Camus. I know in Kit's as well, but I'm the one telling this story. <laughs> no, no, thank you, Kathy. Thank you for sharing. I honestly did not know that story. So this was, I loved it, by the way, because I love medical knowledge. I'm an EMT. Anything medical is just like, oh, I'll listen for hours. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, I could tell that your input was coming from some knowledge. <laughs> just a little bit, not much. but Very no, good. That's amazing what God did because, like, I know you were mentioning that someone, that the person he was sitting next to was the principal and that he actually did die in the accident. Mm -hmm. And from a perspective medically, that's a sign that the accident's really bad when someone dies. Like mm -hmm. if you're in the same compartment as a vehicle and someone dies next to you, that's a sign that that person's going to be really bad off. And like, mm -hmm. without even saying that, just hearing Kit's story, you can really hear like his body went through a lot, but like God sustained him and he sustained you guys. Like, yeah, that's gotta be hard. Like you're sitting in the ICU, intensive care, like you're going on life. Like, like those are some like big traumatic things. Like even as like EMTs, like when we call life flight, we're like, this is bad. We need to get our butts in gear. And you're really drained after the call because you're just like, I want the person to make it. And I did everything, mm. but I don't know if they will. And I can imagine like being the parent of that person has got to be even worse, but like God uplifting you and holding you mm. and encouraging you. Like what a testament to his faithfulness to sustain us through hard times and trials. Mm. And like, what a testament to the fact that he's real in our lives and like 
working. Amen. You said it well, Camus. It was, it was an, you know, I, I love to share the story because it um, pulls it to the forefront of my mind. Mm. You know, when these wonderful, um, when these wonderful providences happen in our lives, mm-hmm. sometimes we can get distant from them. Yeah. But every now and then, you know, when I see Kit and see what God is doing in him, through him, it reminds me again. I, and, and if I didn't have that praise album, mm. I told Mark, I said, when we started recording this journey of Kit's and ours, I said, if God heals him, and I didn't know at the time we started taking pictures whether he would, mm-hmm. because we know that that isn't always God's will. Yeah, I I knew that Kit would be restored to us again someday in heaven, yeah. no matter what. But um, I didn't know what would be his will on in earth. on earth. And so when we started taking the pictures, I said, "Mark, if he makes it, I don't think we'll really be able to." believe Mm. how bad it was yeah so these pictures are constant reminder of where he actually was and and the surgical reports that I have the emergency room reports you know they're like you said documentation of God's faithfulness Mm -hmm. definitely just a reminder like you know God did this. He's in our lives. He's real. He's working. Yeah. Even when we don't understand or when it's hard. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you, Kathy, for coming. It was really awesome to hear your story. I loved it. Camus, thank you so much for inviting me to share God's goodness in our lives. And it has certainly been a blessing for me today. Yes. Well, thank you. And see you all next week.